Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Well, um, we get a chance to talk about persecution. This is the last um, sermon of the persecution segment of the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 54 through 60. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 54 through 60. Or you can follow along on the screen. And it reads, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they grounded their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garment at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Eternal Father, I pray that your word will go forth. I pray that you will anoint my lips. I pray that you will look at the meditation of my heart. And I pray, Father God, that you will allow the transition of this proclamation to be so smooth that men and women hear it clearly. But, Father, I don't want you just to stop there for them hearing it. We also want them to do it and to practice it. And, Father, we love you, we trust you, and we lift you up. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. So let all the saints say, Amen. Eugene Goodman, if you do not know the name, remember it. Eugene Goodman is most recently known as the hero on Capitol Hill. On January 6th, this Capitol Police officer lured a mob of domestic terrorists away from the Senate chamber where both congressmen and women were hiding, potentially saving many lives. It is because of his bravery that he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. However, do not tell you this story for uh, tell you this story for what he did on January 6th, but the testimony on how he lived before the insurrection. Listen to the statement that his former army unit of the 101 Airborne Division said about the army vet. And I quote: Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman 
is rightly being hailed as a hero after single-handedly holding back rioters from entering the Senate chamber last week. An Iraq combat vet and member of the Corps, Eugene was a hero long before last Wednesday. Therefore, we celebrate his valor, end of quote. Did you catch that last line? He was a hero before last Wednesday. You see, what the world witnessed during the insurrection was not an aberration of the officer Goodman, but a pattern of hero characteristics that he lived out before the moment had come. In other words, he was a hero before the riot. All the riot did was put him in a position to reveal who he really was. And so today, I want to ask and answer the question, who are you before persecution comes? Who are you before the storms and the temptations and the, 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 the ruckus of life comes? You see, this is a vital question that we must answer before persecution happens in our life. Why? Because who we are prior would determine what we will do when persecution comes. See, my fear is oftentimes we read about biblical heroes or we watch our favorite athlete and we see them overcome great odds. And when we think about that, and when we think about what they had been able to accomplish and what they have been able to do, then oftentimes we look at them and we think that there's something in them that is different than us, that there's something special about them. And I'm here to tell you that is simply not true. What is in them, watch this, is even greater in you with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, before Goliath was killed by David, the young shepherd boy had already killed a lion. He had already killed a bear under the trusting of Yahweh. Before Michael Jordan defeated the bad boy Pistons, he had hired a trainer, had put on 15 pounds of muscle, and then he won six championships, three back to Brack known as the three-peat. All I am saying is biblical Hebrews are not born. They are made through trusting in Jesus over and over and over again before persecution comes. Like you have all you need inside of you to be like Eugene Goodman and rise to the occasion when, when trouble comes upon you. But here's the problem. The reason why some of us are not overcomers during times of persecution is because what our public life looks like is not consistent with our private life. What we do in public is not consistent to how we live in private. And so I ask again, and the question that I propose before you, 
who are you before persecution comes? And in order to answer that question, we will examine the life of the martyr Stephen. Now, in the black community where I came from, um, it, oftentimes we refer to him as Stephen. So whether you say Stephen or Stephen, your vernacular is accepted here. But we want to examine his life to help us to prepare for our persecution that is coming. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to start with the persecution of Stephen. Then I want to look at his life prior so that I can extract biblical principles so that we may live by in times of persecution. So let us begin in chapter 6, in the middle of the persecution. The Bible says, after Stephen had been proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people, according to verse 8. Then a group of Jews from the synagogue of freemen rose up and disputed him in verse 9. Notice something. The synagogue is called freemen, which suggests that G these Jews were, were slaves who were emancipated by their slave owners and are now enjoying the fruits of Jerusalem. Isn't it like those who have been liberated, who are also the very ones who tried to shackle those who threatened their comfort? Hmm. I digress from that point, but I think it's a valid point that oftentimes when our comfort is being challenged, we oftentimes are willing to shackle or to silence those who are calling us out. And so the verb here, dispute, suggests that there was an ongoing debate between the free men and Stephen. And the problem was that his presentation was so great. His proclamation of Jesus Christ was so great that in verse 10 it said they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. <laughs> in other words, he silenced them with the wisdom as he submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to speak undeniable truth. Like, like he was so smooth, his, his, his language was so great, his apologetics was so great that they was like, man, I, I can't do nothing with this brother. Now, when they could not defeat him in a debate, they would destroy him through deception. So when you go back to the text, specifically verses 10 through 14, the Bible says that they repeatedly, right, secretly instigated, they stirred up, they seized him, and they set up false witnesses to lie on Stephen. In fact, the Bible says that they persuaded men to lie, that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They used false witnesses to say that he spoke against the temple, which in the translation is the holy place. 
Um, that he spoke against the law and that he spoke that Jesus would destroy the temple and that they would change their customs of the Mosaic law. Their comforts, their idols, their traditions are being challenged. The end result of this deception caused the high priest and the Sanhedrin council to consider Stephen a threat to Judaism. And so the Bible says he stood on trial in front of this religious mob. And the thing that I like most about him being standing before this religious mob was he did what every healthy disciple maker would do. And that was proclaim Jesus. In fact, 1,014 words in the Greek, or Jorge, four pages, double space on your exams in college to keep it in context. Stephen spoke the history of Israel, and here's what he said. He talked about God and Abraham. He talked about God and Joseph. He talked about God and Moses. He talked about God, the tabernacle, and the temple. And the purpose and the reason why he used this type of speech to speak to this particular mob was to tell about the history of Israel and how God raised up leaders who Israel repeatedly failed to recognize how God had fulfilled his promise to the fathers and gave them the land and gave them the law and gave them the temple. But Israel repeatedly turned from God to idols. Ultimately, the message was to show that Israel's behavior in the past reflect the leader's behavior in the present and demonstrated why they needed salvation. Why they needed Jesus. But you see, oftentimes, the reason, why so, um, the reason why some of us are struggling with present behavior is because we are constantly doing past behaviors of our fathers. Like the reason why some of us are going through what we're going through is because we are continuing the lintage the errors of our fathers. Watch this. If you want to break generational curses, then turn to Jesus. If you want to break generational curses, turn to Jesus, who is the second Adam, and sever ties with the first Adam in the garden. But oftentimes, when salvation comes and call us to change and turn away from our idols, what is the first thing we do? We get mad. We get upset. That's exactly what these religious leaders did. They got mad. In fact, in verse 54, it says they were enraged and they grounded their teeth at him. Not to the point of deception. They were way past that now but now to the point of death. They wanted to murder Stephen. The text says in verse 58 that they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garment at his feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to find out who Saul is a little later in this sermon series. So he's being stoned. 
He's being murdered because of his proclamation of Jesus. He's right in the middle of persecution. And the last words we hear from Stephen in verses 59 through 60 simply says this. And they were stoning Stephen, and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Notice something. I get the first part of his cry. I get the first part of his petition that the risen king that he had seen at the right hand of the father will receive him. But it's that second position that I'm having trouble with. As he is being stoned, he is praying for the forgiveness of his murderers. In fact, he is asking God to show mercy and pardon them from the sins of innocent blood. In fact, he is reflecting the character of Jesus that is reminiscent on what Jesus did when he was being crucified on the cross. And so I ask you the question, how? Like, how is this man reflecting Jesus in the midst of persecution, or in this case, in the midst of murder? Which begs the question towards us, how do we reflect Jesus in the midst of persecution? And the first answer to that question is, not in that moment. You cannot just show up in persecution and say, ta-da, I'm ready to be an overcomer. You and I cannot just show up and reflect Jesus' character if our life prior is not positioned that way. In fact, a couch potato can't just get up and run a marathon just because he used to be a distance runner. His life, our life prior needs to prepare us for the pressure of the persecution that is coming later. So Stephen did not start reflecting Jesus in the persecution when he was being stoned. Stephen started reflecting Jesus prior to this. So the question is now, how did, how did Stephen live that we can extract from this biblical text so that we might be overcomers and reflect Jesus in the time of persecution? And I have four things. I have four things that God is calling every spirit-filled believer to, to condition their self prior to persecution so that they might reflect Jesus, and here they are. He has called us to be full of the Holy Spirit. He has called us to be full of wisdom. He has called us to be full of faith. And he has called us to be full of grace and power. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, and full of grace and power. Let's start with full of the Holy Spirit. 
The word fool is used four times in this pericope. And it means to be complete. That one who is full is someone who has no lack at all. You see, when you and I are full, then we have everything that we need in us to overcome the persecution that is coming upon us. In fact, it prepares us for the pressure. It prepares us by the power of the Holy Spirit to overflow with his fullness. Not our fullness, but his fullness. In fact, this is the source of Stephen's fullness, that he was full of the Holy Spirit twice. Luke has talked about him being full of the Holy Spirit in chapter 6, verse 3, and also chapter 7, verse 55. But I want to focus on who he was prior. So I, I want us to examine chapter 6, verse 3 real quick and see what God is calling us as believers to do. So in verse 6, chapter 3, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to do this duty. Let me give you a quick background. There was a problem in the first century church when the Hellenistic Jewish widows were not being uh, um, adequately provided for in the food distribution. And the apostles gathered all the disciples together and told them to choose seven men to handle this duty. And he says one of the prerequisite for these men to handle this duty was that they must be full of the Spirit. And Stephen passed it with flying colors. He was full of the Spirit. See, every believer that have put their faith in Jesus when they are going through persecution, one of the prerequisites is going to be, are you full of the Spirit? So, But what does that mean? What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Well, uh, you got to go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, because Luke in his gospel said that Jesus was full of the Spirit. And that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. <laughs> oh no, the Spirit of God led him into persecution. And the reason why I think the Spirit of God led him into persecution is because the Spirit of God knew that Jesus was lacking nothing as he was full of the Spirit. So what does this mean then? Well, to be full of the Spirit means to be controlled or under the influence of the Spirit. It means for us that when the Spirit leads, it is our responsibility to be obedient to His directives. Like to be full of the Holy Spirit means you're under His control, that you're under His fullness, you're under His influence. What do we call that? Dependency. Spirit-filled believers are to depend upon the directives of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I said the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. My lips got in the way on that one. <laughs> 
You know that you are full of the Holy Spirit. This is, at least this is how I know. I know that I am full of the Holy Spirit when I do not have a desire to gratify the flesh, but I have a desire to seek the welfare and the exaltation of Jesus in the time of persecution. That's how I know that I am full of the Holy Spirit, that I am walking through love in persecution, that I am walking through joy in persecution, that I am walking through peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You do not want to be around me when I'm not full of the Spirit. Because you might catch me on the wrong day and then, okay, and maybe it's just me. Right? Maybe it's just me. But I know to be full of the Holy Spirit is to be led in such a way that when he moves, I'm keeping in step with him. So now understand, though, to be full of the Holy Spirit does not mean you need a special anointing. But you do need a special time that you set aside to spend with God. You cannot be full of the Holy Spirit and not have a close relationship with him. Go back to Jesus' life. Go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible did say that he was full of the Holy Spirit, but watch this. Before he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, the text says that he was fasting with God. The text says that he knew the word of God. Now think about that for a second. If Jesus had spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and the word of God, then how much more, brothers and sisters, do we need to have spiritual disciplines so that we are experiencing the fullness of of the Spirit. Mm. This is the formula. The formula is to have intimacy and communion with God so that you are walking side by side and in step with the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can make this plain. I've been going through kind of this nutritional journey, right? And, and, and what I have learned in this nutritional journey is what it means to be full, right? But I've also learned what it means to overeat. But then there's another thing that I learned that I didn't expect, and that is I don't eat enough. All right, Jorge, the nutritionist, man, he's shaking his head right now. See, when I'm full, I have all the nutritional power that allows me to endure my day. But when I overeat, I am intoxicated by something else that causes me to be sluggish and it's hard for me to finish my day. But when I don't eat enough, then I lack. I, I don't have the nutritional power to go forward. Here's the point. The reason why some of us are not experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit is because we're not eating enough. Like we're not spending enough time with him. We're not abiding with him enough. And for some of us, it's not a lack of food. Some of us are intoxicated and distracted by the world, so we're not dependent upon him enough. 
No, the Bible says the fullness of the Spirit will give you everything that you need to handle persecution. And so if we're going to reflect Jesus in a time of persecution, then we're going to have to be full of the Spirit. Here's the second thing. We are called to be full of wisdom. Now, this is a byproduct of being full of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Luke talks about wisdom, he is speaking of Sophia, all right? That's for the ubus. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. He, he's speaking of a transcendent wisdom. Now, what does that mean, pastor? Is this wisdom above our head? No, that's not what it means. This wisdom is the type of wisdom that God imparts on those who are close to him, all right? This is the type of wisdom that a BFF will have, that you can finish one another's sentence because of the intimacy that you have with one another. This is the type of wisdom that a spouse has, when, when they can tell you what you need before you even ask because they have been in community with you so long. In fact, that's one of the things my wife does. Like, she gives me things way before I start thinking about it. I'm like, babe, why you give me this? She's like, you're going to need it. And sure enough, two and a half seconds later, I'm like, oh, babe, where are my key? Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, this is the type of wisdom that is imparted to us based on those who are close to God. Watch this. It's an ability. It's a skill that the Holy Spirit gives to his people when they are given account of their faith, when they are discerning through the wisdom of this world, and when they are making decisions. This is that, that close um, wisdom. That, it, this is that intimate wisdom that Jesus or, or, or God the Spirit whispers in your ear according to the Scripture, and you're like, oh, man. All of us have experienced this type of wisdom. When we was witnessing to somebody and all of a sudden we had this urge to quote this scripture or we had the urge to say this truth and all of a sudden we say it and the person just starts crying. And they're trying to figure out how you knew what you knew and you're happy on the inside and you're telling the Holy Spirit, man, do this to me all the time. This is deeper, y'all, than good judgment but rather godly judgment, godly decision, godly wisdom. See, this wisdom is designed to point people to Jesus based on our words and our deeds, all right? You know this is the type of wisdom that God is whispering because it is causing people to draw near to Christ. Oh, now it's funny because remember in verse 10, when the adversaries of, uh, of Stephen came up against him, remember he said to them that they could not withstand his wisdom. Like, like they could not hold on to his wisdom. Like what, he, what was coming out of his mouth caused them to be like, man, I don't have a rebuttal. And then I started researching what this meant, and it took me all the way back to Luke again. And Sarah, in Luke chapter 21, verse 15, Jesus has a promise for his disciples, and it reads, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand 
or contradict. You see what this wisdom does that God is imparting to us? He said it is so powerful that those who come against you will not be able to stand against you, nor will they be able to contradict. And we've been there before that when you hit someone with a biblical truth, they change the subject. <laughs> they, they change the subject. You're constantly trying to get them back on track with what they had asked you, but they change the subject and then they walk away all completely. If you and I are going to reflect Jesus in persecution, then we will have to have this full wisdom, this, this close wisdom that God whispers to his people. Oh, man. So if, if, if this is true, Pastor, if this is true, if it's true that, that God the Spirit is imparting this wisdom to us that allows us to stand firm and allows our adversaries to, to be on the defense, then why are we not experiencing it? And I give you two reasons. The first reason is we're not close enough to God. We're not close enough to God to listen to him. We're not close enough to God in relationship to be able to know what he would say according to his scripture. We are not close enough. And the bad thing about this is not that we need to get closer to God because God is not moving. It is us who are going farther away. Jesus is standing right here. Jesus has already given us the Holy Spirit who resides inside of us. And so when there is a distance, that means you have rotated away from God. God has not rotated away from you. And the second thing I think hinders us from experiencing the full wisdom of God is that we do not open our mouths to apply the truth that we know. Is that simple? That what God has given you, what God has entrusted to us, we oftentimes are silent. We are mom when the Spirit of God give us directives to go and speak, to go and do. We are mom. We are mute. I said mom. That's not a word, but mute. All right? We are mute in that. So if we are going to be the type of disciples, spirit-filled believers who, who are overcomers in the midst of persecution, the thing that we're going to have to have is the full wisdom of the Spirit. Not only the full wisdom, but we also are going to have to be full in faith. We have to be full in faith. Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says, and what... They said, please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, wherever you go, whether it's wisdom or faith, the Holy Spirit follows. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is the source that is pouring out all of these characteristics. In fact, when you are connected to the Holy Spirit then the faith that he has given us is complete and we are lacking in nothing. And I keep saying that we're not lacking. And the reason why it's important for you to know that we are complete and that we are not lacking is because you don't have to go outside of the gospel. You don't have to go outside of the scripture. You don't have to go outside of God's truth to have a complete and full faith. 
No, the Bible says you already have it. You need to now bring what's in you out of you. Hmm. To be full of faith is to be completely reliant upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be full of faith, that you are unwavering in your faith for Christ. That means you are steadfast in your faith of Jesus. And this was true of Stephen. He was full of faith. His life was controlled by his faith. His faith determined his action. Stephen believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus died. He believed that Jesus rose. He believed that Jesus um, was buried. He believed that Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father. And out of that gospel true, he believed that every man and woman needed salvation and that there was no salvation in any other name but through Jesus. So when we saw Stephen's faith, we saw it go from knowledge to application. We saw it move from his head to his heart, to his feet that produced the type of action that showed that he was full of faith and dependency upon the Holy Spirit. So that's why when the persecution came upon him, he was thinking about the mission of the Messiah who saved and not simply about self-preservation of himself. This is not to say to live reckless. This is to say to live obediently when the Spirit of God calls you. That's how he lived. And so when you hear that, there are two things I think the modern disciple can learn from the life of Stephen. And the first thing is, we have all the faith we need to reflect Jesus during times of persecution. We have it. Like, like, like there's nothing else that, that we need from the outside to complete us. And yet, time and time again, we are constantly trying to shift the gospel. We are constantly trying to make Jesus' voice more palatable. We are, are, are trying to create atmospheres in our worship service so that people might be drawn to the Spirit. But no, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be obedient to the Spirit, and it is the Spirit who would draw people to us. The second thing I think we can learn is when our life is controlled by faith, when persecution comes, our actions will reflect Jesus. Right? Like when our life is controlled by the mission and the person and the work of Jesus, when persecution comes, we don't have to guess what God is calling us to do. We don't even have to think about what God is calling us to do. We do it because we are so planted and anchored in what Christ has called us to do, we respond. We respond. And I know what some of you are saying, but pastor, this type of faith does not happen overnight. And to that saying, I would, I would reply, you are correct. This type of faith does not happen overnight. Therefore, we must constantly be growing in faith. Watch this. Notice I said constantly. 
And the reason why I say it constantly is because oftentimes I believe that we are operating on past faith. We are using the fumes of faith to endure a new persecution that has become, that has become upon us. And the same tricks that we had in the past, and I use the word trick flippantly, but the same tricks that we had in the past won't apply to the things that we need in this new persecution. Right? Like, like when my babies, when they were growing up, they used to crawl on their knees. And they, they, they used to just crawl and go all over the place. And, and they never cried. They, they never complained that their knees was hurting. But now that they are teenagers, crawling on their knees hurt. Because growth is demanded of them to say, no, you got legs now to walk. See, some of us are trying to do childish things when God has called us to grow up and to have the type of faith that causes us to endure a new persecution that is upon us. And then the second thing I would say is this. The brattle ground to grow in our faith does not start in big moments. It starts in the mundane moments, right? See, oftentimes we say things like, I will be faithful to God if he would give me this big moment. But God is saying, how can I give you more when you are not willing to be faithful over less? And watch this. When we neglect the small moments in our lives, we miss out on the opportunities to develop our faith faith, and to develop our trust in God. So that when we do get to those big moments, we don't have the tools, we don't have the maturity of faith to handle it. In other words, be faithful where you are right now and allow God to move you in his timing. Right? Like some of the things that I have learned in life was through pain, through me trusting in God in the little things. Like all of us went through a horrible, horrible thing this past week. Went through a horrible thing. Power out, cold. Oh, it was miserable. But when I think about everything that me and my children went through, everything that me and my wife went through, there are some lessons that I'm like, all right, I know what to prepare for now. Like, I'm buying a generator. I'm I'm already like, bro, I'm finna finna peel off some ducks to get these. Like, I'm already thinking about solar panels on my house. Like, I'm already thinking about a boat, like a raft, like just in case flood. Like, I'm already thinking about these things because I'm using this tragedy as an opportunity to prepare me for the next stage of persecution. So the reason why I think some of us are falling short is because we are not faithful in the small moments and the big moments are overwhelming to us. Be present now. Here's the last one. We are called to be full of grace and power. Look at verse 8. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This final characteristic of grace is tough. 
In fact, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, her name is Keras, which is the Greek word for grace. And, and Tamira and I oftentimes uh, talk about, is she going to show us grace or do we need to show her grace? We don't, we don't know where that is. She's, she's an awesome young lady, but we still, the verdict is still out. But this characteristic of grace is tough. And the reason why it is tough is because grace means to give to someone what they don't deserve. It is unmerited favor. That means they're not going to work for the grace. They're not going to work for the mercy that you are supplying. And in fact, the mercy that the grace that you are giving to them, oftentimes, 10 out of 10, they do not deserve it. And so when we see that picture of Stephen being full of grace, being on full display, is in verse 60. Like he's literally being stoned. He, he's literally being murdered. And in the midst of all that, he's praying for their forgiveness. Why? They, they didn't deserve that. These people were enraged. These people's teeth were grinding. They plugged their ears so they didn't have to hear the gospel that he was proclaiming. They became violent. This mob even dragged him out of the city. Why are you praying for grace and forgiveness for these people? Because that's the mission of Jesus. That's the mission of Christ. That's what he heard his Savior did when he was hung on the cross. In other words, Stephen wanted to be like Christ and in the time of persecution because he was living like Christ before this even happened, he showed up. He showed up. I know some of you are asking because all of us have enemies that we don't want to show grace to. We have parents who have wounded us that we don't want to show grace to. We have friends who have wounded us and we don't want to show grace to. We have churches who have wounded us and we don't want to show grace to. So, pastor, how can we show grace to our enemy? I have two responses to you on that. And the first response is, remember the grace that God showed you when you was his enemy. Remember the grace that Christ showed you when you were hostile towards him, when you were in opposition towards him. How quickly we forget that, that the sins that we had before the throne of grace, grace was just filthy rags. And yet through the blood of Jesus Christ, he made him white as snow. Can I remind you who we were? In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, the text says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throats is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. That was us. And then the Bible says in chapter 5, but God demonstrated his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, he died. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says that we are saved by grace 
through faith. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. So if you're going to show grace to your enemy, you're first going to have to remember that you were an enemy of God. And Christ, through his grace, gave you life that you didn't deserve because he took the punishment on the cross. And then second and last, you must be full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, and full of grace. And when you are full of those things, then you will produce the fruits of the spirit. And when all this is done, y'all, when we are walking in faith, when we are walking in wisdom, when we are walking in these things, then we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we experience the power, here's four things that's going to happen. You're going to do great things and, and wonderful things and wonderful signs. When you are walking in the power, you are going to boldly proclaim Jesus. When you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to proclaim an unstoppable gospel. And when you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will pray for salvation for our enemies. And so if anyone asks you, uh, how do I prepare for persecution? How do I overcome persecution? You tell them, you must live like Jesus before the persecution comes. And you must be full of the Holy Spirit. You must be full of wisdom. You must be full of faith. And you must be full of grace so that you may um, live out the power that Christ has given you. Let us contemplate on all that God has allowed us to experience today. Thank you again for listening to Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, shalom. Shalom.